Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From of questionable origins... Of various productions. This week, we are talking about the Broadway production of The Rink. Specifically, a performance from 1984. That's as specific as this one gets, dolls. This one's easy to find. Looking up The Rink Broadway will give you everything you need. Uh, We mentioned this because while we review the show itself, we also share thoughts about the specific performance we've seen. The internet is your friend, darling. So, without further ado, the curtain is now rising. Look at all those colored lights. I love it. Please enjoy our discussion of the 1984 performance of The Rink. Hi, Joshua. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Doing all right. How about you? Oh, not too good. Oh, no. You sound, you sound despaired. What's troubling you? I broke my hip. Oh, God. Goodness. I, I went roller skating. It looked so easy. Um, uh, and I broke my hip. You know, I'm in my 20s. I shouldn't be breaking hips. I don't know why this happened, but I broke my hip. I had to go get a hip replacement. I, I have a titanium mm. hip ni- right now. Mm-hmm. Just like I'm, Nathan I'm, Chen. I'm, I'm, I'm... Yeah, oh. Just like Nathan Chen. Sure, that's the name that was coming to mind. Uh-huh. Everybody knows Nathan Chen, and everyone knows all of the American figure skaters. Especially if they're listening yeah, to this podcast. What what a what a household name that is. When I think t- titanium hip, I think oh yes, that one American figure skater, two time world champion, twenty eighteen Olympic bronze medalist in the team event. Yes, that's who I think of. <laughs> Well, uh, let's get on topic. Yes, today we are going to be talking about... uh, The Rink! The the Rink, the Candor and Ebb musical, and particularly the video recorded in 1984 with the original Broadway cast making up Cheetah Rivera and... um, Oh, God, what's her name? Uh, Bye! Cheetah Rivera and... Bye. And, uh, Judy Garland's kid. Trash. Trash. She was in that, uh... You're trash, darling. Just trash. She was in that that Bob Fosse, Joel Grey movie. What was her name? Oh, fuck you. Fuck you. It's like uh, something with an S or something. What's her name? What? (laughs) What? Something with an S. Like Lisa with an S or something. What's her name? Oh! It's Lisa with a Z, not Lisa with an S, because Lisa with an S goes nuts. <laughs> Cheetah Rivera Liza. and Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli. Oh, God. You want, you, oh, just, you can't help yourself. You want me to start this podcast angry with you. I don't know why. I don't know why you've become vindictive, <laughs> but God have you. I'm just I trying mean, to have a lovely point. time talking about Liza. and I just like poking at you a little bit. I know how much this means to you. <laughs> you should know how much this should mean to you. Uh, I did. I should. I should. Is that so? Yes. It's. Uh, it's Liza. 
It's not just I agree. one of your it's not one of your regular performers. And not only Liza, it's Cheetah. And not only Liza and Cheetah, really? it's Candor and Ebb. Does it get any better? And, and not and not only Liza Minnelli, Cheetah Rivera, and Candor and Ebb, Scott Holmes. That is not the next name you go for. It's Terrence McNally. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Liza Minnelli, Cheetah Rivera, Candor and Ebb, and Terrence McNally. And Scott. Featuring Jason Alexander. Uh, So, Joshua, what did you know about the rink before we watched this? Before we watched the rink, uh, objectively nothing. I knew not a thing. I knew that it was a show that... uh, the three main actors were in. Uh, three. And that was literally it. Three. Well, because at that point, I assumed Jason Alexander to be a main character in it oh. because of his the celebrity attached to his name today. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. This was long before Seinfeld. And just a question of interest. Uh, what did you know about Liza? Had you seen Liza before in anything? Uh, yeah. No, definitely. Um, Actually... In my first year of university, I watched uh, Cabaret for the first time, the film, and it very quickly became one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, of course I knew Liza Minnelli. Um, okay. No, but, you know, I knew Liza, especially after watching Cabaret. I went and found a bunch of her uh, individual performances. I watched a little bit of Liza with a Z. I was familiar with her as a... Uh, a little bit? A performer, though. A, a little bit? Uh, a little bit. bit. I watched the first... Of Liza the with a Z? minutes. I've watched about the first 15 or so minutes. And you so weren't far. taken in to finish it? I was. I was just distracted because my brain is run by a monkey in a wheel. Um, but but uh, interestingly, I've, I've ne- I'd never seen her in a role on a stage. I've seen her in a role uh, in front of a camera, and I've seen her perform on a stage as herself, but never in a role on a stage. So this was the first time well, I've, I've ever seen her do a musical. You were born in what year? Uh, moving on. You were born what year? Moving on. You were born what year? I was born generally around the turn of the century. Nineteen hundred. You're over a thousand. <laughs> that's not, that's bad math. You're over a hundred years old. Over a old. thousand. Oh, a mathematician here. By any chance, did you go for a degree in theater? <laughs> uh, two thousand one. Okay, well, the last time Liza was on stage in a character role was in 1997 when she did Victor Victoria. So I don't see how you uh-huh. would have seen Liza on stage in a role. Well, I mean, I'd e- like even seen a clip of Liza. Okay, um, but you knew that Liza was a terrific performer and consummate actress, is what I'm getting at. Yes, definitely, I did, I did. Um, um, Dan... Yeah. I, I I hesitate to ask, what did you know about the rink? I knew everything. I, ju- I know. I'm aware. I, I, I knew it. You didn't even need to say it and I knew it. I knew everything. I had watched the video before and I have the cast album. I've listened to the cast album a lot of times. I have the cast album on vinyl. I just love this show. And you just, you'd been that engaged with it? And now I'll ask the same question that you asked me. God, is this one gonna? This one's gonna go on a tangent. What? What's your opinion oh. on Liza Minnelli? Oh, well, I'll step aside for a couple minutes. I'll come back when you're done. Oh, Liza. Well, 
<sighs> I don't... You didn't really live in a pre-internet world. And neither did I, but internet was not readily accessible. You used to go to the libraries, you had to check out books, you had to read things, you have to watch documentaries. Uh, and I think one of the Wizard of Oz documentaries I watched mentioned that Judy Garland had a daughter named Liza Minnelli, and that Liza Minnelli was in showbiz. So I was going to find out who Liza Minnelli was, and you used to be able to have to check the TV guide. And sure enough, one day I found out on HBO... At like 6 a.m., they were going to show this movie called Cabaret, and I was like only six or seven years old. And so I woke six up early. Six or seven years old? Yes, I woke Cabaret? up early. Oh, I no. ran downstairs because uh, I wanted to see who Judy Garland's daughter was. And I put on Cabaret, and um, the movie didn't make a bit of sense to me. I, I don't even think I knew who Nazis were at the time. Um <laughs> But God, was this Liza girl talented. And she could sing, she could dance, she could act. I didn't understand what she was saying, but she could act. <laughs> I was just enthralled. And then, you know, Liza wasn't a real heavy influence on my life until 2016. Mm. The election of 2016 happened. Yeah. And I just didn't know what to do. I was very distraught. And somehow I had put on Liza singing The World Goes Round. And I sat there in the dark crying. And I just listened to The World Goes Round over and over and over. And she got me through that year. That and a lot of alcohol. But that's a <laughs> different story. I'm over that problem by now. <laughs> and Hallelujah. But in 2016, I really got into Liza and really connected Lovely. with her work and realized what a magical human being she is and how lucky we are to live on this planet at the same time as her. Fair enough. Have you ever thought about that? You're breathing the same air as Liza Minnelli. Isn't that terrific? Well, the same air. I imagine she gets hers filtered or something. Well... I wouldn't want you breathing the same air as Liza Minnelli. You would give her COVID or something. Okay. I do hope her air is okay. filtered. I hope she's being kept taken care of and is healthy. And I wish her all of the best, but metaphorically. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, the rink. Yeah. I want to go around the rink, the rink. Um, what did you think of the show? I very much enjoyed it. Um. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. I was... You can yet yeah, breathe deeply. Breathe let deeply. me let me I can, let me interrupt you for a second. I was so yeah, sure. worried that you were going to hate this show, and that would be the end what? of the podcast. Uh, Why were you worried I'd hate about it? I, I, you seem so young, and this isn't exactly a young people show. And I didn't know if it was going to be too old fashioned for you. Yes, I very much did like the show. It felt like this really like one of these last hearkenings of like this really fantastic Broadway melodramas. Yeah, yeah, but it had these like like big dramatic sweeping plots and like this like these really heightened stagings and like these, you know, this like a uh, very familial based uh, material with with the embittered women seeking vindication in their lives, uh, which is a very candor and thing to do as well. Yeah, I really liked it. I had a fantastic time watching the show. Oh, good. <laughs> Did you like the rink by any chance? Well, not to get too oh, much God. into it yet. 
but I uh-huh. think it is an unappreciated masterpiece of musical theater. Fair enough. I'll give you that. Um, have you read the Candor in a book, Colored Lights? No, no. Tell me about it. Okay, uh, Candor and Ebb quote-unquote wrote a book. What it is, it's a series of interviews that were transcribed by a writer and structured into a book. But it's about their career, and it's one of the most depressing books you're ever going to read in your life. Because it's Candor and Ebb, and over here we think Candor and Ebb, they are one of the all-time great musical theater teams, musical theater writers, and you read the book, and... Cabaret was a hit, but all they could talk about is that half of the audience was walking out when it opened. Chicago, the original production, was kind of a hit, but John Kander, who was notoriously one of the nicest people in showbiz, turned to Fred Ebb when they were in Philadelphia and said of Bob Fosse, fuck him, no show is worth this, let's go home, he can figure it out himself. I mean, they're leaving there, everything else is a flop. You know, they said the best times we ever had and when we thought shows were really hits were um, 70 Girls 70, which only ran for about a week when it opened on Broadway. They thought The Rink was perfect. The Rink ended up not being a hit financially and was rejected critically. And they also talked about how much they love Steel Pier, which was yet another flop. It really just... It's candor and ebb, and they can't get a break, it seems like, and they're never getting the respect they're deserving. Fred Ebb spends a decent amount of time talking about how he wants Stephen Sondheim to respect him, and he doesn't even know if Stephen Sondheim likes him. He mentioned Stephen Sondheim came to see the revival oh, of Flora the Red Menace off-Broadway, and uh, they t- saw him, said hi to him, and Steve left without saying anything to Fred Ebb, and he never heard if Stephen Sondheim liked the show. It's a heartbreaking book to read. God. But they do mention that The Rink was one of, they thought, one of their best shows. One of the most full realizations of their intentions, I believe was the phrase. And seeing it, it's, I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I, I understand why you, why you think that. It's really a fantastically constructed thing, and it's, you know, for the the strength of its material, you wonder why it isn't uh, touted as much. Well, why don't we get into that before we get into the show? Why don't we talk about the critical reception? Sure. This sort of did not get the greatest reviews. The critics did not like this show. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think that is? Uh, misogyny. No. Um, I, I don't know. I think maybe it might have been that the perception of Broadway and the kind of stuff that you could produce was shifting to a point where maybe this style of musical was almost starting to be seen as outdated. Do you think that's possible? By 1984, you were already starting to have like mega musicals come in. It was all about these spectacle and it was all about these well, that like, is an really progressive point. new age storytelling things rather than like, you know, this way more traditional, uh, you know, star stars on stage singing their hearts out kind of kind of show i don't know if it's the fact that theater is changing actually a lot of the critics called the musical dour 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 what a hefty word define it Uh, depressing (laughs) morose deadly Mm. do you think it is do i think it's do i think the rink morose yeah it's not the most 
morose musical ever I've ever. Oh, and the heard. thing is, like God, they're saying the rink is dour, and two years later, in London, Blame you're gonna have like three hours of the Miserables. That's literally the title. Christ Almighty! And even even that got uh, crappy reviews in London for being so miserable. But that thing came to Broadway three years later, and it's a critical hit. Mm-hmm. Which just goes to show misogyny. Well, that is the other point I want to get to. At the time, critics were all males, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah. This show is two things. This show is an intricate story about the ties between a tenuous mother-daughter relationship, and then this show is also a double-star vehicle for two gay divas. Uh Uh-huh. And you have Frank Rich, who is a heterosexual male at the New York Times, and he hates the the show. show. Because it's not really for him. No, the show wasn't really intended for him. This isn't, um... You know, Frank Rich wrote brilliantly about Dreamgirls. It's not the, the gay diva thing he can't get. He does get it. And he usually has excellent taste. Look... If you want to define modern musical theater criticism, a lot of what you're going to think of is directly because of Frank Rich. He's a brilliant writer. He writes fantastic reviews. I do think he got the rink wrong. I do not think the show was intended for him. And part of the reason why I think he got the review wrong is that this is what he writes about Liza Minnelli. Harmonizing with her co-star Liza Minnelli. Oh. Um, Oh, God. Christ. No, no, no. Wait, hold on. Not, wait, the one line? The best number, though formulaic, is the first. A hurdy-gurdy evo- evocation of memory, well sung by Miss Minnelli. Until the end, when she opens up the floodgates of her tear ducts, Miss Minnelli is convincing in the thankless role of the unkempt daughter. Well sung, and then one sentence about her. It's a double star vehicle. Hell. Yeah. How are you not reviewing one of the stars? It it doesn't even seem like she's on that stage from the review. And it is a really... It's as close to a two-hander musical as you're likely to get. And one of the performers wasn't even on stage, according to this review, pretty much. It it just seems like a dis... I don't want to say dishonest. You know, critiquing critics is really ridiculous futile yeah futile is correct yeah but it seems like this show was not intended for frank rich and he didn't like it and he didn't take into account that he was not the target audience for this show do you think that that kind of objectivity is like really lacking in criticism of well that's been a recent yeah that's been a recent conversation that really Thank God it's starting to happen, but needs to be happening even more. Not just a conversation. We need the hiring behind the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It was not well-reviewed. I'll just say it outright. I think the critics are wrong. And uh, shall we go into why you think that? We'll keep coming back to why I think that throughout the episode. Why don't we go on to the show itself? Let's just start talking about the show. Sounds good to me. Overall, what did you think of the writing? Uh, the writing? Well, it's a book by Terrence McNally. I found it really, really punchy. I thought it, it had 
you know, just some fantastic dialogue that, like, again, uh, I already used the word, but it's like this lovely old uh, melodrama with these, like, fantastic, like, biting lines that just really strike you, you know? Some fantastic one-liners, some really great dramatic writing. Yeah, the dialogue was a real highlight of the show to me. Okay. Uh, well, that's specifically the book. What you make of the score? Oh, right. Sorry, when you said writing, I, I jumped to assume you meant, like, the, the way the show was uh, written, I suppose. Well, uh, you know, it's a so... musical. The writing is both the score and the book. Right. I should have expanded my uh, horizons. My apologies to all our listeners. <laughs> um... It's okay. <laughs> it's not oh, a big thing, so but it's Candor and Ebb. You might want to give <laughs> yeah, some just, kind of just idea. Yeah, just a Candor and Ebb score. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Just, just Candor and Ebb. Yeah, no, I thought the I thought it was a fantastic score. Uh, a lot of the songs I'm still finding are pretty damn catchy. I I'd like to hear you talk about it first. I think I, I think I know you've had the material in your head for a lot longer. Do you have anything to say as as a, a, a about this as a score as compared to maybe like some of their other work? I, I do think this is one of the strongest Candor and Ebb scores. Mm-hmm. L- let me talk about John Candor and Fred Ebb separately for a second. So okay. The thing that always impresses me with Fred Ebb is that it's always witty, it's always literate, and it always feels effortless. Absolutely effortless. And not only that, the way his songs continue, the way those songs expand, that's not an easy thing to do. It's a constant evolving of the thought you're not just getting well here's a here's a prime here's the bridge here's the ending you're going to get well here's the thought here's the explanation behind the thought here are the thoughts evolving then we have the bridge and then the entire song turns on its head if that makes any sense yeah. Constantly changing, constantly evolving. And as the things are constantly evolving, he can just take these song, these lyrics, each word, use it as a brick and really build an entire building. And then well said. He just has such a knack with words and he's so witty. I, you take something like the sign on the apartment doesn't say Salvation Army does it. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, effortless wit and that's something that i really think is missing in musical theater today there are still some witty lyrics there are still some fun lyrics but you don't get an entire witty score fred ebb the lyrics are always witty they sparkle his lyrics sparkle i'm not seeing the same sparkle and that's speaking in generalities that i don't mean to put down an entire generation of people you know yeah, you're absolutely right. I can't think of another thing that has come of that like kind of real style of lyric writing in the past like couple decades or so. I can't think of too many. That well, classic style of lyric writing. And so many shows now are trying to do some synthetic pop. The lyrics are more yeah. banal. Yeah, and it isn't more, that synth pop is bad. It, it certainly can be enjoyable, but it's a different style of writing. And artistically, this is more what I align with. This is more what I am drawn to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think there's a bum lyric in the show. Hmm. I truly don't think there's a bum lyric in the show. People have pointed out, chief cook and bottle washer, that's always what I was doing, what a cook and bottle washer does. Sounds like a first draft. But to me, it's saying it's a repetitious job. So it should be a repetitious lyric. 
you know, it seems reasoned and it seems correct. Yeah. Uh, it's just a sparkling set of lyrics. Beyond that, this is John Kander at some of his mel most melodic, at some of his richest. You take something like, turn, turn, light up the world. It's so warm. It's so loving. It's lovely. You don't get that too much. It's melodic. I mean, it's the way it's his melodic language, the way it progresses, the way he harmonizes things. John Kander's music feels warm. There aren't a lot of composers true. who feel warm. It's very hard to talk about without getting into specifically which inversions, how is he shading, what dissonant tones come in, but the overall effect, you feel at home listening to a John Kander song. Man. And then I think these are some of his most sprawling me melodies. Uh, these are some of his richest harmonies matched with John with Fred Ebb's lyrics. Uh, I think this is one of their best scores. Yeah. Wow. I I can't think of anything more to say. I think you said it like really perfectly. It just it has this warmth and this and this meaning and this sort of like invitingness that. Uh, it seems to welcome the audience to this kind of like this really entertaining story being told while still giving you just like some really incredible creativity and dexterity. Well, even you take something like marry me. Now you watch yeah. it in context. <laughs> that moment doesn't really have much of a place in the show. It doesn't lead to anything else necessarily. It's needed to understand the story, but it's, it is what could be a forgettable moment. And yet, it is one of the best songs in the score. They are fully investing in every single moment of this show, and they are putting in top-shelf work. Absolutely. There's there's not really a... Like, you know, there's not there's not a song I can particularly call out as being, like, more of a wasted opportunity than uh, the rest, you know? It's that real, like, intense purposefulness. There's that... not a wrong song... There's not really a skip song. That's the perfect way to say it. There's not a wrong song. Absolutely. Um, and then also, they as a team start getting into more song as playwriting. You look at something like Mrs. A and how that song progresses. Yeah. With the different characters coming through. And it seems to start with a paradox. Because she's saying... She's praying. She's on her knees. She's praying to God. She says, listen, you, I don't want to wake tomorrow morning. I'm scared about the night. And she ends by saying, I don't believe in you. Well, if you don't believe in God, why are you praying? Hmm. And what's interesting there is not only is she praying, and I think she ends it um, in the name of the Son, the Father, the Holy Ghost, or whatever the Catholic thing is. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know... She's challenging God. Yeah, it's, my yeah, life, it's like it's it's my life is going really poorly right now. I need you to appear for me. I need you to convince me that you exist because right now I'm not having a good time. Yeah, and there's also maybe like a little layer of like this complete, almost this lack of faith, but then still this like almost double checking just in case, making sure just in the event it, it does happen. You know, it's like sort of like this. It's like the losing of faith while still gripping on to that last bit of faith that you do have. And that if that's how you're raised, you don't really let go of those things, you know? Yeah. 
but to see how that song builds as playwriting and you get the fact that she's been with all of these men she's praying she's having issues the song itself is an entire scene but not only is she challenging god what they're doing there is they are giving the actor the tools they need to make a great performance. They're giving you all the information you need in the score. They are giving you something to interpret. They are giving you something to give to the audience. And that's the sign of great writing. For me, in the theater. Because you can have great writing, but if the actor can't utilize it, you're not going to communicate the intended effect to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're saying it all. Wow, yeah. Y- y- like... <laughs> man i knew i was gonna i knew you were gonna have a lot to say about this thing but uh god you're taking the words out of my mouth here it's it, it's a really really skillful construction it's just like it's it, it's a fantastically interesting story and told in such a such an entertaining way that's such a, such a big part of the show is that it's like a really gripping edge of your seat kind of experience it's it really really makes you dig your teeth into this story into these relationships into these connections into their pasts it's it really allows you to to like devote yourself to these characters Mm -hmm. something about candor and ab is that they also really know how to write for the performer they also know how to give them stuff to work with how to make them enjoy the performing of the number they're not just singing a little ditty it's something for them to sink their teeth into as well you know that's something they're really great with yeah um, giving the performer the necessary skills to give a good performance. Yeah. And also just letting them have fun in the meantime. And it seems like a foregone conclusion, but you see enough musicals, you realize it isn't, unfortunately. Yeah. It's something you yeah, really can take for granted. Granted. Um, for granite. Granite, granted. Uh, but let's move Granited. on to... <laughs> let's move on to the Terrence McNally book. Um, the critics really dinged the show for it not having a good book. Did you? Th- what did you make of the book? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it was really gripping, really melodramatic, really punchy, fantastic one-liners, and very entertaining. Like a like a very very well written, very gripping story with some really fascinating dialogue. I think it's a great book. They aren't. Terrence McNally has a definite way with a one-liner. They're not the best one-liners of his career, but when you look at the overall volume of funny lines, mm-hmm. it's you know every two minutes there's a line that has you laughing. But it's not just the laugh lines. You know, a book can't just be a series of jokes. Or this would be a 1930s musical. You know, there's a real story Ew. being examined here. <laughs> it's that's not that's not a hit on 1930s musicals that was just the style um yeah but there is a real story here uh, about you know a mother and daughter and their broken relationship and i think what the book captures so well is that more than just specific events there are a series of microaggressions that at least in mother daughter relationships that i've seen that don't work it's yeah. not big moments. It's small microaggressions that you take to heart and that add up all the, o- over the years. Little things... The entire show, Cheetah, is constantly... You know, you're really going to eat that. Const- little digs at weight. Little joke lines here and there that are getting laughs. But if you're Angel, the Liza Minnelli character, really cut and really add up. Yeah. It's like really... 
delicious. Some of this di- that's the good that's a good word for it. That's like a yeah, like 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 this this fantastic like delicious dialogue between Anna and Angel that just really it's like these like these jabs that are so enjoyable to see. It's almost like soap opera. Eat. The story does get a little soap opera, you know. The father was away at the war. The father the abandons them. I don't think that necessarily makes it bad. Yeah, no, definitely not for the worse. If anything, it's it's for for the entertaining. Yeah, it's melodrama. That's just what it is. Yeah, and damn good melodrama. But you know, in really the biggest confrontation, Angel says to Anna, "You never loved me." Anna responds, "Well, you should have been more lovable." Oof. Ouch. God, that will make that will make uh, any. That... <laughs> Any self-respecting theater nerd squirm in their seat. Yeah. Uh, it's That tells you all you need to know about what happened between those two. And it's little... I think that's also why the critics didn't get it. It's all these little lines that add up over years. But if you aren't engaging with the show at every minute, you're not going to pick up on all of those little kernels and see how they build and see how they add up. Yeah. Right. And then the other thing that struck me watching the show recently, Dino leaves. Dino is uh, Anna's husband, Angel's father. Dino leaves, and he gets into a fight with his father, and his father says, if you leave, I have no son. Dino and his father go nuclear the same way that Anna and Angel are going to go nuclear 20 years down the line. It's really interesting to kind of think of the connections between Dino and Angel. And, you know, are they mirrors of each other? Is the entire story a mirror? Is there an entire different show about Dino and his father? Are they just replaying the same story out years later? How much of this is genetic in Angel? You know, just genetic sense of memory when things get tough, you abandon. Damn. Interesting. You could just follow the show and try and watch the similarities between Dino and Angel. I might I might try that, just for the hell of it. But it really, Dino and his father go nuclear. Angel and Anna go nuclear. It runs in the family? It's, yeah. Is this just the family way? Man. Loaded question. And then we have the song The Rink. Now, if we're going to be honest here, it's not... Very integrated into the plot. The song. The song, yeah. The Rink. Yeah, sure, but, you know, it didn't bother, that didn't bother me. You're at a roller skating rink. Of course, someone has to eventually skate. And just from a technical level, Liza and Cheetah are on stage the entire time except for two numbers. They need a break to go get water, at least, you know? And so that's the reason why that's there. It comes in the middle of the second act, and then they have to really do heavy lifting when they come back. It's a diversion, but it's such an entertaining diversion that you don't really mind. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I, I I like that scene. I like that number. Oh yeah. So so overall, the book. I like... thought I thought it's a great book. It's great writing. It's witty writing. It's layered writing. And it's very detailed. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I really, really like the book. Well, I'm good. I'm glad. I think it's really a brilliantly written show, overall. 
Yeah, I don't have anything to disagree with you there. I, I was something that I was never, I was never taken out of the story. I was never, you know, not enjoying. You're put in the hands of a lyricist like Fred Ebb. You know you can relax. John Kander is a composer that's going to make you feel warm, make you feel at home. Terrence McNally, it's someone that you know, knows his craft, knows what he's doing. It's very professionally put together. Very true. Overall, effectively written, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, overall, you generally took a liking? Yeah. I, I don't know if you got this impression, but I loved it. Uh, I was just starting to catch on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so do you want to go on to talking about the production itself then? Yeah, why not? Uh, we had direction by A.J. Antoon and choreography by Graziella Danielle. Yeah, uh, um, it was a very minimalist production. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it's one set, although it has the coup de théâtre of all coup de théâtres at the very end. You, you want to describe that for the audience? Let me think. Yeah, um, so there's this... The, the set for most of the thing is um, pretty much the same, except as, as, as the show sort of reaches its conclusion, it very beautifully sort of like opens up this this back wall completely disappears and there's this like fantastic it, it gives this impression that you're in this like huge beautifully lit golden space yeah the plot is that the rink the roller skating rink that anna owns is going to be raised uh going to be knocked down and the very final conclusion is that angel is going to allow the rink to be knocked down they go up this staircase, and sure enough, the entire rink disappears before both of your eyes, and they're running off into the sunset. Just a really, really beautiful picture to end the show on. And, you know, they've relived all of the memories, both positive and painful, and they're ready to let that go, move forward in their relationship. So they let the building go, and it disappears like all of the emotional baggage that they're carrying. That was a lovely, lovely thing. And I um, but 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 other than other than that, it's for the most part a very sort of minimalist production. It takes place in this one location. The rink is sort of this familial icon, you know, this sort of thing that feels like home to uh, these characters. And so, m- keeping it for so long and making the audience feel as though uh, they are home in that space is a really, really effective choice. And and they managed to do a lot with it too. They um, it it really beautifully illustrates itself when it's taking part as uh, a flashback to the past, or even when um, it is trying to pretend to be somewhere else. You're not really too thrown off because uh, the wonderful lighting design makes it so you're you're transported to a different part of the world and um, yeah, the lighting really delineates location, delineates time. It's not easy to accomplish, but it does it with a plum. Very true, and that was something I really that 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 was just a part of the production that I really really liked. Um, what did you think about the direction of the piece overall? I thought it was very strong direction. So first, you start off. Those are some damn star entrances. You hear yeah, the the, the music's beginning, and someone has their back to you, and you get excited. Ooh. 
who, who's behind us? And they're kind of holding up a newspaper. The back is churned. The anticipation rises. The curtain goes up. We don't know who it is. Oh, is that her? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she just turns around and starts singing, Oh my god, it's Liza! <laughs> and then later on, you have... This sign descends. This old sign that says, you know, ladies only, which was one of the signs that they used at the roller rink when the roller rink was operational. And the wreckers come in. They start lowering this sign. The sign goes up, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Cheetah Rivera stood behind the sign when the sign was down. She made her entrance. It goes up. Boom! Cheetah Rivera's on stage. Those are star entrances. We don't get many star entrances there, but those are some fucking star entrances. Just delectable. Really delectable. It's an old... Star entrances feel old-fashioned, but God, they just give you endorphins. Oh, God. Yeah, it it was staged very much like it knew exactly what it it was. That you have to tailor to these two kind of... These two huge stars, and it did so brilliantly really fantastically mm-hmm. yeah i absolutely i absolutely love the direction just um there was there were like a, a lot of the really more creative choices in uh its decision to implement choreography in certain scenes uh, to have these actors play multiple characters and the roles that they would put them in just a lot a lot of this in, in terms of staging in terms of dynamics in terms of, in terms of like uh just the conceptual ideas, I think, was, like, be- really beautifully crafted. You know, there's one scene. Uh, mm. I've only watched the show twice, but it's made me cry both times. And it's awkward because it happens midway through Act 1. Um, Dino comes home. It's Angel's birthday. Angel is five years old. He brings in a light... Um, not a light. He brings in a mirror ball for Angel... And he brings home all of his drinking friends, too. Mm. And Cheetah Rivera knows he's drunk, but they're having a party because the alcoholic father says they're having a party. And she wants to dance. He won't dance. She eventually decides fine. She starts dancing with another guy, flirting with another guy. He gets angry. He starts smashing dishes. She goes over to him. And they've banished Angel upstairs. And he says, you know, I don't know who I am anymore. Which is another line that we get later on in the show with Angel. She says some variation on, I don't know who I am. I need to go. I need to leave. Find out who I am. Which is another thing, the mirror between Dino and Angel. But he went off to war. He came back. He's um, potentially having some issues with post-traumatic stress disorder. And Cheetah Rivera sings, we can make it. That is the scene, and it seems, you know, not one of the main story points, but it always gets me to cry. And there's two reasons why that is, I've come to realize. One, it's just incredibly clear storytelling. You can see Cheetah's dancing, he's on the side, he sees that she's flirting with other men and he gets jealous. Later on, they're fighting, and rather than Angel just disappearing... She's on that staircase. She's watching them. She's learning which side of her parents she's going to take when her parents break up. The entire scene just very naturally progresses. Great staging. But more than that, 
For me, musical theater is exceptional individualism. And exceptional individualism. What I mean by that is that in musical theater, the characters live and die by their ability to think for themselves, not to be a part of some bigger group, but to be individuals who can think for themselves, make their own choices, make their own way in this world. And we used to have performers that very much were embodiments of that credo. Mm. So you see Cheetah Rivera starting to dance. That is an exceptional individual. Completely aside from the storytelling that is exceptional individualism, that is an exceptional individual. But they're all dancing. They don't all look the same. They're all doing the same movement. It looks like unified movement. But they each... They stand out. Stand out. They are individual characters. None of the performers sound like one another on the stage. They are all idiosyncratic. They are all unique. They are all individuals. And they are all exceptional individuals at that. And that is something that I think we have really lost in modern musical theater. Man, I, 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 I get exactly where you're coming from. Because we have these training programs. That and are sort of more like factories. The kids come out. They are incredibly well taught. They're incredibly versatile. And they're all similar to one another. They aren't unique personas. You know? Uh-huh. You've seen one, you've seen 50 of them. There's nothing that is that different on stage. Whereas in the rink, especially in that scene, if there's nine people on stage, you are seeing nine very different energies. All gelling and all adding together to send the message of the show over. And I just find it so moving. Well, and then we can make it. Has there ever been a more beautiful Kander and Up song? Has there ever been a more loving Kander really and Up song? Incredibly, incredibly performed by Cheetah. God, she just poured her heart into that. Well, and not only that, Angel's on the staircase. She's crying down. Daddy, come up to me. And while Cheetah is performing this great song, she's also stopping the father from going upstairs. So that's just adding seeds. That's a great directorial move because that's just adding seeds of Angel resenting Anna. There's yeah. so many layers. So many layers to this. Absolutely. God, that was a really good number. And the entire scene just builds to the absolute breaking point, and then we can get we can make it. It's just some of their best writing. So what did you make of the decision to have the six or so wreckers to play every char- other character in the show? It's a very uh, Brechtian choice. Uh, for those who might not be acquainted, Brecht is a theater performer who sort of has this style of this A effect, which is short for alienation effect, in which you sort of focus more on the absurdities of theater of this, like, you know, you, you really, really detach yourself from realism. Uh, and, and I think they were used very, very well to that effect. You had, you know, really funny moments where um, all of a sudden the actors are in drag playing uh, these old pepper pot ladies complaining about how the things are not what they used to be. And it's it just the absurdity of this versatility that all these people are playing different characters in their lives. Is something I think was really effective. I didn't notice any like you know specific subtextual reasons as to why they were there, but I think it was just a very nice, funny, effective piece of staging. The critics hated 
the the ah. six records play to all the characters. Why is that? It. I don't see why. I, I think it's an effective way to do the show. And you look at musical theater nowadays, every show oh, has shit. someone doubling a character or two. Yeah. It's like uh, you have one actor in a piece. They're going to be uh, there throughout the whole show. They're get, The directors are getting their goddamn money's worth whether it kills them. Well, you look at something like God Help Me, Come From Away. God will help you for saying Come From Away. God will help you. Uh, no, I know exactly what you're saying. It's like it. it uh, um, that show I think really allows itself a sense of uh, community through that. It really it, it it helps to sort of heighten the fact that this is like one small town and everyone knows each other and like they're all coming together and having this thing. I think that 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 one's really used effectively in that in that specific setting. And of course, it was praised for that for having yes. its actors jump so back back and forth and like painting this image with just the the scarce few of them. Well, and those one actor in Come From Way is probably playing what 10 different parts. Yeah. And it was seen as a positive. In the rank, they're doubling like two or three parts and it's seen as a negative. So that just shows you how much things have changed, how much theater has evolved, where the everything has... Yeah, these yeah. conventions and how they've shifted. Well, let's talk about the choreography. What do you think about the choreography? Choreography? I think it was really well done. Uh, Candor and Ep shows allow themselves some really great t- choreography moments. And, yeah, damn, this was nothing if not uh, really effective. You got... You, you gave definitely enough moments for um, Cheetah and Liza both to shine. They had some fantastic uh, dancing duets. Uh, there was, of course, that uh, the mugging ballet in which Cheetah Rivera literally does pretty much everything but a backflip. <laughs> and, yeah, it, 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 was, it was really nice, really impressive. Choreo- and, of course, the, the, the rink number, just this entire number on roller skates. That God damn, is that entertaining to see. You don't get uh, feats of that kind of... Of that nature on the stage so much anymore. Now it's just uh, how many flips can we make our actors do? How how far can they spread their legs apart? That was what I was going to get. Um, The rink number specifically. They put the actors on roller skates. And they're not doing really advanced moves. But it builds. The number is well built. And it couldn't be more entertaining, more exciting. You have a modern choreographer do that number. You're going to have people doing flips on roller skates, doing back bends, back turns. And you've seen it in a million shows. It's just not effective because it also underlines the fact that that isn't a wrecker. That isn't someone working at a demolition company. That's someone that went to CCM. (laughs) Yeah, Christ. <laughs> you know, not to pick on a specific yeah. college, but, you know, it it's not realistic that someone that has a BFA and that's someone that had yeah. to have a bunch of special skills on their resume because everyone now has to have special skills on their resume. Or else they won't get uh, jobs because that's, that's what their choreography demands. I- yeah. I- in this number, in the original staging... You felt like these were just regular Joe Schmoes who put on roller skates, had a hell of a time, and look what they're actually able to do. And it's exciting. Yeah. Show, show you more than just acrobatics to really, like, yeah, to really give you 
a, a true showcase of not just their physical ability, but their skill. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All of the choreography is really, in this show, the Graziella Danielle choreography is really storytelling through movement. It's rooted in character development. Mm. It's not just, let's show what these performers can do. Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Um, I really, really love the choreography in this. There are a lot of like really specifically memorable moments. Uh, which this show didn't even really specifically need, but was really nice to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not um, a show that necess- I, I've heard the revivals don't have anywhere near as much choreography. I haven't seen any of the revivals, and the show isn't revived much. It's revived about once a decade in London. <sighs> yeah. Loved it. Really loved it. All right. So does that mean that we get to go on to the performances? Yeah, let's move on to the performances. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, okay, okay, okay. Scott Holmes, okay. go ahead. Yeah, baby, Scott Holmes! Woo! For those who may or may not remember, in our first episode, Evita, we got to watch our first... Uh, we were granted the privilege of watching our first Scott Holmes performance in which he played uh, Che. And we are now revisiting him, him here in the rink, which was a pleasant surprise to me, as I was not expecting his presence, and was just, you know, hearing his voice for the first time in this video, it was like being greeted with a warm hug. It was a nice, firm handshake in the door. It was, don't worry, baby, you're safe. I'm taking care of you. You know this. Let's get this. It was lovely. Lovely experience. There were some other people in the show as well, but Scott Holmes really just took the cake here. Oh, no. No. (laughs) You revised that last fucking sentence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were quite a few other people in the show too but scott holmes really you revised that statement <laughs> come on man there Let is him have this he wasn't even on the he wasn't even in the top billing exactly okay scott holmes he has such a warm welcoming instrument he does you, you said warm hug that really sums it up fantastic, nicely fantastic fantastic voice it's a shame that he hasn't done more theater because wow he's just a really consummate performer genuinely he has a lovely voice he gives a decent performance are there there's only two people on stage really yeah true although do you think we should address jason alexander before we go into the the two performers of the show yeah let's do jason alexander he is a smaller part than scott holmes in this he has like one number and is in a couple scenes doing a couple lines I, th- I see I but I see a future for this guy. I really do. <laughs> He's a nice presence to have on stage. Yeah. And I don't know, he just has this really warm welcoming thing. I think his future is going to be in theater. I think he has a huge huge future for him in theater, a lot of leading parts for him. I think that's where he's going to no- make his name. Everyone's going to know the name Jason Alexander, the guy from theater. Yeah, the guy from Jerome Robbins Broadway. That's what everyone remembers yes. him for. I know he uh he tried entering the the camera entertainment world but i think he just did a uh, a pilot for a sitcom that sort of flopped i don't think it went anywhere with that shame damn shame oh yes the two that uh, were on the stage yes the two that mattered <laughs> yeah so i think for both of our sakes i think uh let's start with cheetah rivera okay what did you think of cheetah i thought uh <laughs> i thought cheetah couldn't be beta it's one of the worst things I've ever said. <laughs> 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 uh, 
wow, just a a performance where you really just put it all out there. You are showing every single dimension of yourself as a performer. Uh, you are showing yourself as a comedic actress. You are showing yourself as a songstress. You are showing yourself as a dramatic actress. You are showing yourself as a vulnerable woman. You are showing yourself as a dancer. You're showing yourself as a belter. Just, you know, you hit it on all cylinders with this role, and Cheetah does not miss a single beat. Absolutely just a, f- a fantastic, professional, fluent, elegant performance from her with, like, real charm and spunk and grit and every shade of the damn sun. I don't want to be hyperbolic. Um, mm, so sure. let me let me think what the correct way to say this is. Seeing Cheetah Rivera dance is to understand the true meaning of life. <laughs> yeah, well said. And if I can expand for a minute, there is something about seeing Cheetah Rivera dance that just is so joyous, that is just so moving, and that makes you say... This is what is possible for human beings, and this is a reason to keep living, because moments like this exist, and someone is able mm-hmm. to do that. You know, yeah. I just, I saw her in The Visit, I think I previously mentioned this on the episode. Yes, you did. You know, the people that I was sitting by didn't seem very taken with the show, but the 11 o'clock number, Love and Love Alone, has a bit of a ballet, and Cheetah is dancing with her young Follies ghost. Um, I that's, love that number. That's something that we should explain to the audience. Anytime there's a younger self on stage in musical theater, we call those young Follies ghosts. The Rink has a young Follies ghost, um... <laughs> which uh-huh. is the young angel skates a little bit at the beginning of the show. Right, true. But we have Love and Love Alone, and she started dancing. And it's something, it's uh, the way she communicates through dance. It's the way she acts through dance. Um, it's the technical prowess. But these people that didn't really like the show were sobbing. Mm. Within about four bars of her dancing. And I was sobbing the entire theater. I have never heard such a reaction of people just audibly crying. Absolutely sobbing. And that's Cheetah for you. You know, we're going to talk about Liza. I do love Liza. Cheetah Rivera won the Tony Award this year for um, The Rink over Liza and over Bernadette Peters in Sunday in the Park with George. And she absolutely yeah, deserved yeah, I it. I think that's deserved. Yeah, she, I think so too. She absolutely deserved it. She does everything. She sings. She dances. She's funny. She's a dramatic actress. It does have so many colors. But not only does she do these things, she excels at everything. She is an exceptional individual at everything. Just life affirming work. Yeah, wow. Just an incredibly, incredibly enjoyable consummate performance you completely see why she is one of the leading ladies of all of broadway history it's an honor to watch her yeah well said well said (sighs) there's only one cheetah rivera man hard to try to find someone of that caliber ever again Uh, again that's another person we are just lucky to breathe the same air as her yeah fantastic 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 
beautiful, legendary performer of our time. Anything else you have to say about her? I love her. Yeah, so do I. So do I. <sighs> okay, all right. Dan? Yes. Liza Minnelli? Yes. Yes? Uh, why don't you give your thoughts first? Good idea. As I mentioned, this was the first time I'd ever actually seen Liza um, perform a role on stage. This was the first time I've ever seen her in a theatrical thing. I knew that, I know that she was like very famous for her concerts and for her uh, sort of film and television work. And so I was wondering like, uh, you always wonder if those like, like how well those things translate when you're given like a lead role in a Broadway show, when you're like really doing the Broadway thing, you sort of wonder like, uh, you know, how, how will this Liza that I know that I'm more familiar with trans translate to this medium and damn it. It's excellently a, a stunning, stunning performance from her. One where the idea of, uh, actress Liza Minnelli almost, uh, disappears. It's like, you know, you don't see Liza too often in that show you see you really get her character which is a really big ask for someone of Liza Minnelli's stature but damn it you see Angel you see the 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 character lying underneath it and that's something that she's excellent in she is excellent at playing a character rather than uh just being Liza Minnelli doing a role and it's her and it's she's doing all these things and oh isn't Liza Minnelli such a lovely actress don't we all love her she really gives herself over to that character and it's 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 brilliant the way she does so yeah that the I I I a, a glowing performance oh god this is the quiet before the storm so Let's get into the reason that Liza is in this show. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the Rink was workshopped for a number of years, and Angel was a small supporting role. It really was Cheetah's show. Sure. Fred Ebb gets a call, and it's Liza on the line saying, I want to do The Rink. It's a small supporting role. It isn't for you. She calls John Kander separately from Fred Ebb and says, I want to do The Rink. And he said, Liza, I don't know if it's going to be right for you. It's not the lead character. She said, I don't care. I want to do this show. This show doesn't have one sequin in it. And that's why I want to do it. I want to work with you people because I love you. You love me. We've been friends for years. And this show doesn't have a single sequin. <sighs> So this Damn. is Liza taking arguably the biggest artistic swing of her entire career. She is a recognizable persona, and people wanted to see Liza Minnelli, the powerhouse performer. Liza wanted to prove that she is a consummate actress who can do all types of roles. And when the reviews came out and completely dismissed her, she was apoplectic. You read colored lights and you read stories about she was locked in her dressing room in complete tears, saying, you know, nobody liked me. Um, the public 
to an extent, was not happy with the rink because they came to see Liza Minnelli and she didn't have any sequins. And Freda very aptly said, you know, after the rink, after you get those reviews, what can you do with your life? You know, she had a backpack in the show. He said, was she supposed to just start sewing some sequins on the backpack so everyone would just accept that she's on stage? And this is the biggest blow. This is the biggest turning point in her career. She is limited on what she was able to get away with. Not because it's what she is able to perform. She's brilliant in this show. She does it with a plum. But if she's going to play a normal housewife, a normal character, she does it a couple times. She does it in TV movies. The lesson she learned from the rink is that if she's not going to be Halston glamorous... She can't charge people to show up. And there is nothing huh. in the world that is more limiting for an artist than to hear that. God. That's devastating. And then, we should say, she had to leave the show a couple weeks early. Um, because, you know, the, the rink being stuck in the show after she got terrible reviews after she was told that we don't care about you as an artist to go put on some Halston, which was really crushing. It was very tiring. And she got invited to one of our nation's former first ladies, um, palatial summer estates for a nice, um, extended 60 day stay. And when such invitations appear in your life, um, they can't really be rejected, you know. I, I know that Lorna Luft very much encouraged Liza that it was important to accept this invitation from one of our nation's former first ladies, and it would be a good move for her life to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would be dishonorable to the country to not accept an invitation from the wife of Gerald Ford to go spend time at her summer estate for a restful vacation. <laughs> and so Liza left a couple weeks and her understudy the Forrest Gump of musical theater Mary Testa played the role for a couple weeks before Stockard Channing took over uh, Mary Testa really oh, hey. is the Forrest Gump of musical theater you know Liza leaves the show early Mary Testa is there uh, Mandy Patinkin plays a transgender woman Mary Testa is there uh, they completely Whoa. reorchestrate where, where, Rogers where? and Hammerstein Mary Testa is there What a, you know Marilyn and American Fable Mary Testa is there name it Mary Testa is somehow there she is is the Forrest Gump of musical theater. I just, I, I'm sorry, I just generally can't believe that you managed to find a way to invoke the 1987 off-Broadway musical The Knife into one of these recordings. <laughs> it's like, it's six degrees of Mary Testa. That's perfect. <laughs> but Mary Testa did f- finish Liza's run for two weeks. Um, this recording seems to be from early on in the run of the show. I would even guess that this is during previews. I know a little bit after opening, they added red pajama robes for Liza and Cheetah to come out in to take the curtain calls because they wanted the women to look glamorous. Audiences were very angry. The women didn't look glamorous. And if you see the Tony number, that is what they are wearing. They're wearing their curtain call outfits. But in this video, they come out and they are in their normal costumes when they take their curtain calls, which leads me to believe this is early in the run. This is potentially even in previews. 
So, to get to the actual performance, because we haven't even gotten to Liza's performance yet. <laughs> get it She's... out. It's okay. I'm trying to look for the right word. She's just amazing. She's just amazing. She's got it all on vocally. I mean, she is sucking those numbers over one after the other. The voice is there. The voice is with her. She's giving you all of the voice. You look at something like Angels Rink and Social Center. She's just got that million watt persona. And it's the old idea of not performing a song, but putting a song over to the audience. Liza is such an embodiment of that. You know, you take moments like Liza... Her character is five in one scene, and Liza plays the character at five. This could easily be the worst moment in a show because the actress looks ridiculous that's playing it. With Liza, it's one of her strongest moments in the entire show. She doesn't even put on a different voice or really does a different physicality. It's just a few small changes, and you absolutely buy, yes, She's a five-year-old. Of course. What are you talking about? This is the, one of the most effective moments in the show. And it could have gone so wrong so easily. It doesn't go wrong with Liza because she's so invested in the performance. And she is so convinced of... She's so convinced of the character's truth, which in turn convinces you of that truth. Um, yeah. And, you know, Liza is just so effortlessly vulnerable at the drop of a hat. She's making a joke, and the next moment you're close to tears. She's, if you want to get pretentious and talk about the actor's instrument, Liza is someone who is so in tune with her actor's instrument to such a fantastic degree. You know, I have to say, yeah. I think Liza is one of the best actresses our nation has ever produced. Um, it's specifically one moment in the rink. It, they find out, Liza finds out that her father didn't die, that he ran away. And she turns to Cheetah and she goes, you're a liar! And the growl she gets in her voice, the tears that are coming... It's nothing that you expect. And it's just, it shakes you to your core. The other moments that I would suggest you look up, um, Arthur 2 is not a good movie, but there is a scene where Liza has to tell Arthur she's not able to have a baby. And you can tell she's hurt by this news, but she has to put that aside because she has to tell Arthur this. She also wants to make him happy and she doesn't want to hurt his feelings there's just so many different layers to what she's accomplishing and then the last piece that you really should look at there's a scene where she breaks up with buster bluth in arrested development yes and it's just one line she says you need time and again it's a moment where she realizes this guy is really messed up but I like him. I need to tell him this so he knows it. But I also can't hurt his feelings at the same time. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And then the absolute genius thing is the character of Lucille, too, has vertigo. So she says, you need time. And she turns around and she can't find the door because she's dizzy. <laughs> it's... 
it's one of the most hysterical things ever. It's she sells both the drama and both the comedy. If you didn't have Liza Minnelli, if you had Meryl Streep in that role, for example, she'd say you need time. It would be heartbreaking, and the camera would cut. If you had a comedian in that a comedian in that role, they'd get the vertigo. They'd be falling down. It would be hysterical. You wouldn't necessarily get that big dramatic moment. To accomplish both and to know I need both right next to each other, that shows one hell of an actress. Well said. And just, the rink, I don't know why they dismissed her. I do not know why they dismissed her. She gave a beautiful performance that she should be proud of. That's the other heartbreaking thing. The day she closed in the rink, that was the last time she sang any of these songs. They never showed up again in one of her acts. Wow. If this show hurt her. I think Kander and Ebb both said, this show hurt us more than any other show we've ever done. She was hurt. She took a big swing. She was rejected. She should not have been rejected. She should absolutely be proud of this performance. It's a fantastic performance. She shows that she's got everything you could possibly want in a performer. And then just other general notes I have. Cheetah and Liza dance together at the same time in Wallflower. They have a dance duet. And Mm -hmm. you see that, you know, Cheetah is a perfect technical dancer. And Liza isn't as technically advanced, but she perfectly understands the style of dance. And she's going to sell you every bit of style. It's a really nice contrast, and they really complement each other as dancers perfectly. And then, just with the overall style of performance in the show, there used to be an understanding of taking a material, sending it out to the audience, and really mining the script for detail, mining the script for laughs, mining the script for moments. I feel there's been an overall performance change nowadays the text is seen as marble and you perform on top of the text. These people, these performers in the rink are using the text as clay. They are putting the clay in their hands and they are molding Mm. it into something. They are in with the text. They are not on top of the text. They are there as one with the writing and they are really pulling pieces together, pulling things apart, molding an overall vision. It's a performance style that I don't see much nowadays, and it's a performance style that I absolutely love. Wow, that was brilliantly put. Do you agree? The whole clay and marble metaphor? Yeah, on both fronts, especially seeing as... Like, it, it, in relation to how, like, the style of performing then and the style of performing now, you're absolutely correct about that. Um, and it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It's that my personal taste is clay. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, 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 uh, I will share the same interest with you. I like when performers are able to give a very singular unique performance where they don't have this outline that they have to follow this like a they don't have to imitate a performance or be given like direction down to the movement where they're able to 
like it's that beautiful word interpret they're able to interpret uh, a role um that's such a beautiful beautiful thing that you just i don't even harder to come by i don't even think it's a matter of interpretation it's that um it's a matter of are you interpreting through using the text or are you interpreting on top of the text is really what I think the delineation right. is, you know? Yeah. Like, the text is seen by some people as something immovable. Um, I don't want to say sacred, because that gives a whole weird religion thing to it, a religious aspect. But you view the text, you come up with a performance on top of it, rather than okay, this is a laugh line, let me send the laugh line out to the audience, let me do this, I'm going to take this, I'm going to extend this, this detail it's giving me, I really have to hammer this home. It's about being available to the audience, too. Yeah. And it's seeing the text as being a living, breathing thing that you don't do a performance on top of, but you get in there because you own the role, and... It changes because you are different. I love that. I love that. <sighs> We're going to get into the actual bootleg. I just want to say something before we do. Yeah. The Rink is close to being a lost musical. It isn't really ever done in America. There is the cast album, but you have things like All the Children in a Row. There's an entire scene before the last verse. The scene completely affects what the last verse is, what the last verse means. The Rink was a show where I had read the libretto, the original published libretto. I had listened to the cast recording. The show doesn't make much sense when you read it just on paper. Because Liza is in, Liza is in 1970, Cheetah is in 1980, Cheetah is commenting on Liza in 1970, Liza is responding to Cheetah's comment, and then she's continuing the scene in 1970. It, it, there's multiple time zones happening, there are multiple locations happening at once. It's not an easy script to read. You see it performed in front of you, it makes immediate sense, it's just a matter of lighting. It's complete, de completely yeah. delineated perfectly. It is not a show that reads well. Um, the cast recording is great, but does not give you the full picture. This is a show that also has no recording at the Theater on Film and Tape Lincoln Center Archives. Wow, really? There is a 28-minute pre press reel that includes one of the TV reviews of the show. That is it. Jesus. So, the only real record we have of the original production of The Rink, it being an underappreciated Kander and Ebb masterpiece, it being an underappreciated Terrence McNally masterpiece, it being Cheetah Rivera's first Tony Award ever, it being the turning point in Liza Minnelli's entire career, Liza Minnelli being American showbiz royalty, this is the only record we have. This is why bootlegs matter. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. Because without this, it would be completely lost to the ages. Just think that so, that a musical of this caliber could just have completely vanished 
from the public consciousness is just oh man it 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 it, it speaks to that integral a role of i i've always had the thought to call i've always sort of called the act of bootlegging or the act of like you know collecting bootlegs or whatever as a sort of independent archivist you know like like to 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 engage in that is to sort of have this independent archive of the theatrical world is preservation of art not just to get out of paying a few dollars to for tickets to go see a show but to be able to keep those legendary performances those things that should be testaments of time that are lost and forgotten and brushed aside and the way and the idea that you'll just never know what this piece of art could do to influence another piece down in the future to think that something like this musical could have been so easily brushed aside or forgotten or you know neglected the theater by its very nature is ephemeral and no bootleg mm-hmm. can capture the full experience but god let's capture something yeah even if it doesn't give the full experience it gives you an idea and you know what is that overused phrase those that don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it Mm. we lost so many people in the AIDS epidemic we lost so many performers we lost so many writers we lost so many directors we lost so many choreographers the theater is passed down generation by generation uh, link after link after link it's a chain of information the AIDS epidemic broke that chain it wasn't just the major people we lost. It was all of the apprentices that those major people were teaching. It was then all of the students that were going to learn from those apprentices. We should be promoting learning from the older shows, learning from the older generations. One of the only ways to do that is bootlegs, which is not ideal, but it is what it is and you can have still lovely experiences right absolutely (sighs) thank goodness for bootlegs and on that note do you want to start talking about this bootleg in particular sure um it's hard to talk about this because I don't know what generation this video is. Do you want to explain but, generation? Um, for oh yeah, no, the okay. Audience? So when you're yeah, so the word generation in in regards to bootlegs um, means the I guess the addition or the version of it uh, based on how many what level of copy this is. For example, the uh, the original filmer of the video, aka the the master. Uh, copy will be the original, right? Um, distributing that, you will make a copy of that original master material, and then you will have your first copy. And then from there, people will copy that and make a second generation copy. Um, you know, sort of meaning that it's a copy of a copy. Then from the second generation comes the third generation, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. And so basically when we're saying we don't know what generation this is, we don't know uh, how many how many filters, how many times the video has been uh, copied at this point. 
uh, because back in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't it wasn't so easy as a digital transfer. These videos were put on VHS tapes, and the way you would share them is that you would record your TV with a different VHS tape and then distribute that VHS tape to something else. So again, you know, copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, there's a lot of uh, side effects that come with that, the biggest one being generation loss in that, that loss of quality you get when you just copy something indeterminately. And uh, this one does unfortunately suffer from a decent deal of generational loss. Generation loss, typically you would lose color, certain level of details. And the colors in this are, are nothing if not faded. The colors are very faded. This is a static-filled screen. I think the there are glitches that seem to be just glitches from how the VHS played it back when it was recorded, which is a shame. You can hear the camera zoom. That's the first thing. When the camera zooms in, you can hear the lens kind of moving inside the camera, which is something that isn't was typical of the time but we don't have any more so that takes a second to get used to um there are a couple of minor audio disturbances and muffles at the beginning other than that this is really stunning audio quality Mm -hmm. you hear just about every glittering orchestral detail i i love that you you get you 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 hear every intonation and the performers you get to hear pick up the audience's reaction and for what it's worth despite the loss in video quality it is still an excellently shot thing it's excellently it's, filmed i don't think yeah, there are some heads in the way but they don't get you can see heads at the bottom of the screen they don't get in the way i don't think you miss anything yeah fantastic i uh, you know just a plus cinematography here Definitely in the running mm-hmm. for the Oscar, I think. <laughs> no, it's really stunningly shot. The quality, though, is just not very good. By the time we received it. I do have to say, um, but hey, the YouTube yeah. channel Aurora Spider Woman uh, has clips of oh, the, the legendary, rink. The legendary. And we should say we're using she, her pronouns because... The character of Aurora Inkis of the Spider Woman is a female. We have no idea mm-hmm. whose channel that is. We are very lucky yeah. they post anything on YouTube, and from what they've posted, they must have the most extensive collection in all of musical theater history. And I am I am so far just I I've I've just generally been picturing them uh, as uh, Cheetah Rivera in Kiss of the Spider-Woman, if that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure that this is actually Cheetah Rivera's collection. We this is Cheetah Rivera's it. personal collection. Yeah. But the clips that she posted from the rink, I don't even know if they're from the same video, but her clips are an absolutely jaw-dropping quality. Mm-hmm. Please, let's, let's, not, let's not pry her. She does so much for us. She does so much, and we're so grateful to have her. Um... Definitely watch those clips because the quality there, again, the first time I watched it and I saw the quality of those clips, it did bring a tear to my eye. I think I watched those clips before I even watched the full show, to be honest. And to see that this even existed in that quality was stunning. 
I don't know if that's a different video. I don't know if we watched the same video. I have no clue. But what we watched, the fact that it exists is so invaluable. Absolutely. So, why don't you put a grade on it? For this quality of video, for the fact that this is the only copy of, the only version of this production that has seen the light of day, and the fact that this is like the last remnant, and that it's such a clear, 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 clear video showing you exactly what the staging is and, and exactly the layout of the theater. With only the quality knocking it down, I think I have to give this a really, really high B+. Yeah. Um, the I, would audio, say, I would say... The audio is so good. Yeah, no. Um, if On a good day, I might bump this up to an A-, minus. really, I think. In 1984, getting any kind of home camera into a theater in 1984, not an easy feat. Mm-hmm. A fantastic, fantastic video. Yeah, I, um, I would give this a B plus. I would give the show an A plus. Uh, the video is a mm-hmm. B plus. What um what grade would you give the show? The show, um, I think I'd give it a good A. I think I would give it an A, if if for nothing else, at least for the fact that it is a show that does not dawdle. It does not leave you looking at your wrist or thinking back and forth about how long is the bathroom line going to be at intermission. It's a show that grips you in. It tells an interesting story. It has some fantastic numbers. It tells its stories in a fun way. You get fantastic performances. There's not a moment in the show that makes you feel down or bored or uneasy or, you know, it's just a fantastic ride of a show. And it's one that I really would enjoy watching again. That's what I got to say. There were gods among us once. There still are. And you know, there still As are. As of recording this. And there As still are. This. And they worked on the rink. <laughs> and so that was us talking about the rink. Um, and if you're still <laughs> here. Week, uh, first of all, thank you for still being here and hearing us fawn and dote over this uh, show. Next week... <laughs> here's one I'm really excited for. I've decided I'm really going to thoroughly put uh, Dan through the ringer by addressing one of the most popular shows ever to be bootlegged, uh, that being the off-Broadway production of Heathers, starring uh, most of the original off-Broadway cast. This is, you know, Heathers is one of those shows where people say a lot of its popularity comes from uh, the bootleg. And so after talking about a show and discussing the importance of bootlegs in the context of the immortalizing of art, it's also interesting to now go on to a show that owes a great deal of its success to bootlegs, uh, at least in the eyes of its uh, very, very rabid and loyal uh, cult fan base. So that'll be a really interesting one for next week. How are you feeling about it, Dan? Uh, I'm just jazzed. <laughs> I can't this wait. Is exactly your purview, isn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly what I like in art. I, I I have no idea what to expect, but I'm so excited to watch the Heather's. Uh, Heather's. It's called Heather's. The Heather's. Heather's. You're you're adding a word that doesn't need to be there. No, it's the Heather's. 
What am I adding? It's not though. It's a, you're adding you're adding a the, and there doesn't need to be a the there. It's just Heather's. But, but there, single word Heather's. There's more than one Heather, so it's the Heather's. Yeah. Well, yes, but it's not speaking to a pluralized like. I, 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 well, hey, you know, actually, that does bring up an interesting question now that you arise it. Does that mean that the title is more so, less trying to speak about this specific group of girls or more about the general social construct of a Heather? What is a Heather? Is Heather a type of person? Is Heather a genre of human? Well, fine, if it's about a concept, and you just said if it's about a Heather, call it a Heather. No, have the no, title be a Heather. No, but there's more than no, no, one no. Heather, but so is it's this, the is, Heathers. Is, no, 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 no. The question is: Is this show about a group of girls called the Heathers, or is this a show about Heathers in general? The concept of what makes a yeah, Heather. but there's what more than one Heathers, Heather, so it's the Heathers. Yeah, even even the concept, individual... even the concept of more than one Heather. I think is, that means it's the Heathers. You're gonna. This is pretty much what you're gonna be in for next week, folks. Um, please join us again next week when we really try to hook in our teenage audience after a few weeks of just absolute, uh, not teenage familiar material. It's the Heathers. (sighs) We'll fight more on this next week. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Join us next week when we talk about the off-Broadway production of Heathers from May 25th, 2014. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The Rink. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed here and here.